We just stepped on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Bullshit. Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, coming to you today from the Highlight Factory Studios to talk about some Atlanta Hawks basketball because we have Hawks playoff basketball for the first time in four years, and I could not be more pumped. If you're new to the show, please subscribe on any major podcasting platform you might be using. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or email us, titlerunsports at gmail.com. So our Atlanta Hawks finished the regular season 41 31 finished with the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, tied for the fourth best record in the conference with the New York Knicks, who won the tiebreaker over the Hawks on the strength of a 3-0 series sweep of the Hawks in the regular season. But, but, I'm here to tell you why that regular season sweep may not necessarily be indicative of where this series is going for the Hawks. So, just to recap the regular season, the Hawks ended the regular season with a 41 and 31 record, beating the projections we both had for him, Scott and myself, here at Title Run. We had them at around 38 to 39 wins. And had you told me the Hawks would play 45 games without DeAndre Hunter, 28 games without Bogdanovich, I would have probably told you that they don't finish nearly as highly as they did. But they overcame that. And anybody that's been watching the Hawks knows this is more or less the tale of two seasons Nate Hawks versus the Pierce Hawks. So the Nate Hawks went 28 and 11, winning at a ridiculous 718 rate which is the equivalent of like a 58-win season in a regular 82-game schedule. So that's the third best mark in the NBA over that stretch, which goes all the way back to March 1st. And you can kind of attribute a little bit of that to improved health in a soft uh, schedule after the All-Star break, which got them off that eight-game winning streak. But it's kind of hard to fake your way through having one of the top records in the NBA over half the season, especially in the new plan era where tanking is pretty much non-existent, where teams are battling for playing spots or playoff seeding down to the very last games of the regular season. So, yes, the Hawks played the Thunder in the Magic in Houston in the last two weeks, and they're terrible, and they actually are tanking. But teams like the Bulls and the Kings still had stuff to play for. So it puts a little bit more credibility to team a team that's having a good late-season surge because they're playing teams that actually are still trying to win. And there were a couple of clear factors that distinguished the second-half team from the group that went 13-20 and 20 under Lloyd Pierce. The first big factor, as we've already mentioned several times on the podcast, was health. The emergence of Bogdan Bogdanovich, since he got really healthy about the beginning of April, he was still a little bit banged up in March, and he really got it going about the beginning of April. Since then, his averages, 22 points per game on 50% shooting, 49.5% from three, and 88.9% from the line. That's over a 17-game span, so it's a pretty good sample size. And say bet Lloyd Pierce is wishing that he had that over the 25-game span when Bogdanovich fractures his kneecap in February and January. And ironically, maybe not so ironically, his first game back was Nate McMillan's first day taking over officially as head coach of the Hawks. And just in general, the Hawks have seen a slight boost in some of their overall trends on the season. So on the whole, the Hawks were ninth in offensive rating at 114, 18th in defensive rating at 112, 11th in net rating, and 22nd in pace. Under Nate McMillan, pace stayed the same. The Hawks climbed up to 115.9 in offensive rating, which was 7th, 111.3 in defensive rating, which was 11th. So about the same on defense, improvement on offense. And again, some of that has to do with just having healthier players. You had Gallo healthy. You had 
Bogdanovich healthy, and you got Lou Williams, who was more effective than Rondo because A, he actually played, and B, because he's played well when he's played. So health was one of the biggest factors that contributed to the Hawks' success, but also it was fourth quarter execution. And the fourth quarter execution was helped by improved health because, I mean, you're not closing games at Solomon Hill and Brandon Goodwin anymore. Love Solomon Hill, but he's not as good of an option as Bogdan Bogdanovich. Brandon Goodwin's not as good of an option as Lou Williams. It's just not. And in addition to that, the Hawks have been objectively better on both ends of the floor in crunch time since Nate took over. Now, there's a certain amount of randomness to whether or not you actually win close NBA games in the fourth quarter because you could get a bad call, the ball could bounce right, the wrong way, people make crazy shots like the three that LeBron hit over Steph Curry the other night in the playoff game, playing game. Sometimes things like that just happen because NBA players are good and winning close NBA games is difficult. But there are some trends that really, really seem to indicate that Nate has been part of the reason for the improvement. So the Hawks' clutch time stats pre-Nate under Lloyd Pierce. And by the way, clutch time is defined as the last five minutes of a game where the point differential is five minutes left. The Hawks played 19 such games prior to March 1st. They were 6-13 and with a 127 defensive rating, which is astronomically bad. Next to last NBA, in a negative 21 net rating in the fourth quarter, meaning they were bad on both ends of the floor. So it's not like they were scoring a lot and giving a lot back. They were just horrible on both ends of the floor. The one team behind them in both cases is actually the Los Angeles Clippers, which is interesting. Since then, the Hawks are 12-5 and in these same situations, which is the fifth best mark in the NBA during that time, with a 121.8 offensive rating, which is third in the NBA over that time, a 105.7 defensive rating, which is 13th in the NBA over that time. And listen to this. Their net rating in the fourth quarter since March 1st is third. They're shooting 42% from three in clutch time, second in the entire NBA since March 1st. Ironically, the team's number one is the New York Knicks. So the Knicks themselves, as most of you know at this point, are a defense-first team. They allow the fewest points per game in the NBA. They are third in defensive rating. They allow the lowest opponent's three-point percentage in the NBA. And they play at the NBA's slowest pace. So... You can probably expect this to be more of a grinded-out series where possessions are valuable, hoping our boy Trey Young takes clear of the basketball. And and their offense is essentially Julius Randle on the first unit, finding shooters like Reggie Bullock, and Derrick Rose in the second unit with Emmanuel Quickly and Taj Gibson. That's that's their offense. I mean, that's that's what they do. And they shoot threes at a top three percentage in the NBA. Like they're like 39% as a team on three-point field goal percentages for the year, which yes, that's extremely high. But they are in the bottom three in the league in attempts. So they don't shoot a lot, but they shoot them at a high percentage. Now, unfortunately for the Hawks, in the matchups that we had this year in three games against them, the Knicks shot at an absurdly high rate. So first game against the Hawks in January, Randall absolutely destroyed John Collins. Took him to the rim, posted him up at will. Capella switched over to take the responsibility of guarding Randall in the fourth quarter. And then Randall went from scorer to facilitator getting the ball to R.J. Bear and Emmanuel Quickly, who were able to really hurt the Hawks in that game. Quickly had a bunch of clutch shots in that game that really kind of helped seal the deal. And the Hawks lost that game 113-108. And all of these games have been games where there were lead changes in the fourth quarter. They were all tight. They all came down to the last few possessions. They were all close games that were very tightly contested. And in that game, Julius Randle scored his season low against the Hawks of 28 points. <laughs> so the Hawks, I guess you could say, held him in check. Um, 
It's worth noting that Randall also shot 0 from 5 for 3 in that game, and the next two games he made up for it by going 13-21, averaging 42 points and 10 rebounds, absolutely torching the Hawks with late clock fadeaways and step-back threes, and needless to say, if that version of Randall shows up in the playoffs, the Hawks are screwed. <laughs> We're not going to have an easy time winning this series if Randall's going to play at that level. In the second game, uh, the Knicks won 123-112, to and Collins played better defense than Randall, played off the nine drives, and Randall just instead drowned him in jump shots from mid-range and from deep. Finally, they switched Clint Capella over on him again in the third quarter, and the Knicks just started catching fire from the outside in the fourth quarter with Emmanuel quickly and R.J. Barrett taking turns just hitting end-of-shot clock daggers. Uh, Emmanuel quickly ended up with 16 points in that game. I think he might have had 15 in the second half of that game. I don't remember if that was it was that game or the first game. And... R.J. Barrett threw in 21 points and made three of three from three-point land, which Barrett's not a great three-point shooter, so that was definitely uncharacteristic from him. And Julius Randle threw in seven threes and 44 points. So that game was frustrating because that was the game where there were several times where the Hawks played good defense, and then Julius Randle just hits a fadeaway step-back jump shot that one of the ones I remember he hit from behind the goal in the fourth quarter, and you're just like, the Hawks aren't going to win this game. Third game was a game the Hawks were in control of, up by eight when Trey tears up his ankle, and the Hawks just go ice cold on offense, get bailed out by a ridiculous shot from Bogdanovich to send the game in overtime, and they just get run off the court in overtime. So you just have this trend from these games where the games are tight, they go into the fourth quarter, there's lead changes back and forth, and then Randall just takes over the game in the fourth quarter. And he got help from people like R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel Quickly. Not so much Derrick Rose as somebody you would think. Um, I think one of those games, I think it was the first game, Reggie Bullock got hot. But the bottom line was that in all these games, the Knicks, in the last two games, the Knicks shot the ball at an uncharacteristically high rate. Again, they're a 39% team, so they shoot the three well. But again, they don't take that many attempts. They take about 30 a game. First game, they were 10 of 31, so slightly below their season average and a percentage right at their season average for attempts. The next two games, they went 17 of 34 in game two. 17 threes they hit in game two, way above their season average. And that was to pull away from the Hawks late in the game and win 123-112. to And then in the last game, which was played in April 21st, 137-127 to win, a high-scoring game for these two teams, they shot 19-35 from three to beat the Hawks in overtime. That's not sustainable. I want to tell you that if the Knicks are shooting threes at that level, the Hawks have no chance of winning this series. On the flip side, Trey Young made three three-pointers this entire season against the New York Knicks. So... Well, I don't think you can count on them to go 19-35 in many games in this series. I also don't know that you can count on Trey Young to go 3-14 for 14 from the three-point line in this series either. Now, one of the things that does concern me is our ability to match up with Julius Randle. That's going to be the biggest factor in the series. Who guards him? John Collins has shown that he clearly cannot guard Julius Randle for any stretch of time. And John Collins is a big, strong guy. He's 6'9", 235. But Randle, who's listed at 6'8", 250, has babied him in all the matchups. I mean, he can't guard him. And so we've had some success switching Clint Capella over to him and making him a facilitator because he will not try to drive on Capella. But when he's got that mid-range jump shot going, Capella sags off him and he just hits those, which I guess is better than him getting layups and three-pointers. Or if his jump shot's not falling, he just starts facilitating. And with other guys making shots, I mean, it's hard to defend when the Knicks are going to have Reggie Bullock and R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly knocking down three-pointers. It's hard to defend, even Obi Toppin, if he gets in the rotation. 
it's gonna be hard to defend. And if you don't put Collins on Julius Randle, the question becomes, who does Collins guard? Do you drop him down and do the old Golden State Warriors versus Memphis Grizzlies defense and have him guard a non-shooter like Alfred Payton when he's on the floor? Or do you have him guard R.J. Barrett, who is probably too quick for him, but Barrett plays primarily by attacking the rim. I think he had a couple of games against the Hawks where he got over 20, which by just barreling his way through defenders to the rim, he's a good interior player, and he made threes against the Hawks. So do you have John Collins go guard him and maybe get beat off the dribble? The Knicks do traditionally play with a big-bodied center like a Nerlens Noel, who's you know a good two or three inches taller than John Collins. So I'm not sure that's a great match because I don't know that Collins can keep someone like Noel off the glass if you take Capella off him. So that's an issue. And then if you have John Collins guarding one of the non-shooters so that Capella can guard Julius Randle, who does Trey guard? Trey can guard Alfred Payton when he's on the floor, but Trey can't guard Derrick Rose. I mean... It's just something to think about, and there's all these matchups to consider. I don't know what the Hawks will do defensively, but my vote would be for DeAndre Hunter to start against Julius Randle because that's a matchup we didn't get a lot of this season. DeAndre Hunter did not play the last two times against the Knicks, and he only played sparingly on Randle in the first game. Played him pretty well, and I don't know that he is going to be able to stop Randle from going to the hole, but he is just overall a superior defender to John Collins. He can move his feet. He's got some size. And I think he's probably the best option to start on Randall to see if we can slow him down. Because if Randall's going to facilitate and they're going to have to rely on Derrick Rose to score 30 to beat you or the other guys we've already mentioned to hit their outside shots, I like our chances a lot better. And one of the other things the Knicks have really been able to do to teams is play really well with their second unit of Taj Gibson, Derrick Rose, and Emmanuel quickly with Rose just feasting on backup point guards because he still is a guy that can score. His mid-range shots improved greatly. He's smart. And then them getting still really good defense and rebounding from Gibson so you don't have much of a drop-off. And this is without Mitchell Robinson because their second unit used to have Nerlens Noel coming off their bench. So this is actually a pretty solid second unit, probably better than most Hawks fans realize. But I'm hoping and I believe that the second unit could be the biggest key to the game in the Hawks' advantage. Because as much as I think that second unit for the Knicks is pretty solid, especially if you throw in top in there because he's a good offensive player, Bogdanovich, Gallo, Herder, more than likely, and if not Herder, it'll be DeAndre Hunter. And then some mixture of Solomon Hill, Tony Snell. I think that's a pretty solid matchup, and I think that's advantage Hawks. I really do. So we'll see. The last key matchup in the series is obviously the coaching matchups. It'll be interesting to see how these teams choose to defend each other. You generally want to keep Trey Young out of any pick-and-roll situations because if you're going to have Trey Young guard someone like Alfred Payton, he can't shoot, but he can run a pick and roll where Trey gets switched to on a big, and then that's going to be buckets all night. So do you keep Trey on a shooter like Bullock who's not going to be involved in the pick and rolls? Do you switch everything and have Clint Capella play drop coverage, which the Hawks have done a lot of this year, and dare people like Julius Randle or R.J. Barrett to shoot mid-range jump shots? It'll be interesting to see what the strategy is. We know what the Knicks are going to do. Tom Thibodeau teams – Coming from the Spurs school of thought, which is the Coach Bud school of thought, they do this. They're going to pack the lane and make you take low percentage three-point shots, but you will not score inside. And we know that that's a strategy that is very, very good in the regular season and has not been super effective for them in the playoffs, either for Thibodeau or for Coach Bud. And that, again, goes back to the Greg Popovich Spurs school of coaching. The difference is 
Those guys are not Greg Popovich, and they do not have players like Tim Duncan, Monta Ginobili, Tony Parker, and David Robinson. Although you could argue that uh, Giannis is pretty close to a Tim Duncan, David Robinson level player. Either way, Nate's playoff record, it's bad, y'all. I mean, it's objectively not good. His Pacers suffered four consecutive postseason exits from 2016 to 2020, getting swept in three of those four trips in the first round. So, first round exits. And Nate coach teams have only made out of the first round one time in nine tries with a 321 win percentage. Doesn't exactly give you a whole lot of confidence in a Hawks team without significant playoff experience from, what, sixth or top ten players? I mean, you got Capella, who's played in a conference final. You have Gallo. You have Lou Williams. You have Solomon Hill, who was on a finals run with the Heat last year. So, six of your top ten players have very, very minimal playoff experience. And you're facing a coach who has had some playoff success. Not great playoff success, but some playoff success. So, from New York's side, the Tom Thibodeau-led teams have made it out of the first round of the playoffs in five or six tries, having never been swept and having a win percentage of about 429. So, in short, the coaching matchup, it, it favors New York, which is, I know, not a shock to some Hawks fans, but it, it does favor New York slightly. And giving them the advantage of coaching, I would give the Hawks the advantage in depth because while Randall is arguably the best player in this series, um, he's definitely having the best season, I would say, of any player in this series. I think you could easily argue that the next four best players in this series all play for the Hawks. And the Hawks have more depth in their bench. And I think overall, just a better top-to-bottom squad. But, but the Hawks don't have home court advantage. And the Hawks have something ridiculous like a 19-2 and record over their last 21 home games. So if they had found a way not to stub their toe against the Pacers and get home court advantage... I would say the Hawks walk in this series. It's a six-game series, and it's a wrap. But having to go to New York, where we've lost twice already this season, and they're going to have 15,000 fans there that are waiting to see Knicks basketball, the biggest capacity they've had all year, I just worry that you're going to get one of those pee down your leg moments, a moment where just we look out of it, the lights are too bright, it's a little bit too fast, Trey's getting defended differently, he's not getting to the line 15 and 12 times like he did in some of the games earlier in the year, and you're having to learn how to adjust to playoff basketball. I can see that happening. I don't think Trey is going to shy away from the moment, but I could see him adjusting to being defended differently and officiated differently. I can see Kevin Herter having a one-for-seven night from the three-point line. I could see those things happening, and the Hawks losing a game in New York because of it. However, at the end of the day, I like the Hawks in seven games because of what I just said. I am praying that Nate has learned from his past failures in the playoffs and I honestly believe that Trey will figure it out, even though I do expect some rough games from him, especially if he turns the ball over. The Hawks aren't going to win. But I think ultimately he's going to figure it out, and the Hawks do have just enough veteran experience in the playoffs and superior depth that's going to allow them to, at the end of the day, take this series in seven games. So make sure you check back for more Hawks content. We'll probably have a mid-series review because they'll be playing this series over two weeks because you know the NBA has to stretch everything out and get three weekends in for the series. We'll have a series wrap-up and a season wrap-up uh, if the Hawks lose, but I just told you they're not going to. So we'll be back with a preview of the Hawks versus, we assume, the Philadelphia 76ers. This has been Dave the Fate with Powder Run Sports Podcast. That's it for today. 